find your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2. One of the most uh, prevalent thoughts in all human culture is the idea that if you are a religious person, that that equates to having a genuine and authentic relationship with God, and you will receive the benefits of actually whatever religion you're following, and that is prevalent everywhere. And we all know people like this. In fact, we very well may be in that camp. I'm religious, and hence that equates to whatever relationship with God is, I must have it because I'm a religious person. You might be thinking that. We certainly know people that are from that camp. Uh, For me personally, I grew up in a Catholic home, and so I did everything that you're supposed to do. I was baptized as a baby. I have no recollection of it, but I did see a picture. I probably was disturbed that they were putting cold water on my face, but they, but they did that. And then I went through, uh, they had communion, confirmation, and, and that was what was practiced, and that was, came from my family tradition, and so I, I did it. And you may very well have done things like that. You followed a certain tradition, and basically what it comes down to is you really hope that your family's choice or your church of choice or the denomination that you place yourself in has got it right. In fact, you're banking on it. And you're trusting and believing that by me doing whatever they're asking me to do, fitting, following in line, fulfilling the patterns they put before me, that that will equal and equate genuine relationship with God that will spare me from hell and that God should allow me to be in heaven. But let me just ask you, can being religious really save you? Can it? It's a question that you need to ask. If you were a person from a Jewish background, you would say absolutely yes. Absolutely. No doubt. And Paul, who God is using to write this letter to the Romans, he is an authority on the Jewish faith. Uh, He grew up in a Jewish home. He had practiced it Uh, to the letter. I mean, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He actually had it down. He was zealous for God. There was nothing that he omitted. He understands the rationale of the Jewish mind because for so many years he has been there. And when you come to Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17 through 310, it's like hitting the play button on your DVD player to find out what did it look like when Paul interacted with with Jewish people when he was presenting the gospel to him. What did he talk about? How did he present the gospel? What were the issues that they discussed? You don't have to guess. It's actually recorded right here for you. And now, don't get the idea that he's just down on the Jewish faith or the Jewish religion. Actually, what he's trying to do is to warn them and to walk them through the rationale of understanding what real relationship with God is all about. The definition of religion would be kind of like doing external things that somehow merit or earn the inner person salvation. And he's going to take that head on. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 17, as we make our way through Romans, you're to find out that he's going to start listing the expressions of a misguided faith in the Jewish religion. And so here's Paul, and you can just almost imagine him discussing with someone. And what he's doing here in the book of Romans is he's using a classical form of Greek uh, teaching, which was called diatribe, where it's as if you have another person in front of you and you're entering a discussion. Even though this is a monologue or he's writing this, you, you hear the arguments and you are like listening in on a conversation. So he says, verse 17, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. Now, this is the first time you see the, the word Jew, the name, proper noun Jew, in the book of Romans. Now, let me give you a little history. In the Old Testament, 
God's people, his covenant people, were called the people of Israel um, or the Hebrew people. But after uh, what, what takes place here is when Solomon dies, that southern half of Israel, there were 12 tribes, that southern half was called Judah. The Assyrians had already hauled off in 722 BC, the northern kingdom. And so what happened, starting about the death of uh, Solomon, the people of Israel began to be identified as Jews. Their name literally means praise, Judah, praise. And when, by the time you get to the Babylonian exile, when they were actually hauled off into Babylon, uh, they are known exclusively, the Hebrew people are known as the Jewish people. And these are all the descendants that come from Abraham through Isaac. And so he says, if you bear the name Jew, God's chosen people, and you rely upon the law, you actually have God's revealed word, and you rely on it, you're following the practices. And he says, and you boast in God. You actually find that you're, you're boasting that we know God, God is our God, we've got the one true faith, we've got the one religion. He's saying, if this is your case, verse 18, and you know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, you actually know what the law says. You actually have a system of morality actually based on what God has revealed in his word. You know right from wrong. You don't have to guess. You don't have to make it up. You don't have to, like, we're going to all vote and agree on what our morals are. You actually have it from God. You have all these things. You've been instructed out of the law. And in verse 19, he says, and you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. You actually fathom that you are so in tune with God because of these benefits that you have. You can take people from darkness to light. Or like he says in verse 20, uh, you're a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You've got it. You embody it. You have all these things. And, there, and the Jewish guy is going, yeah, I'm with you. I'm tracking. Well, then he says, I, I have this question here for you. Verse 21. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Do you actually practice what you preach or proclaim? And you could almost see the guy like stepping back like, Whoa, what are you talking about here? So for example, he says, you who preach that one shall not steal. Absolutely. Got it in the law. Just a question. Do you steal? Do you steal from your employer? Do you steal from your neighbor? Are you, are you personally taking things? I mean, you're proclaiming these things and you've got the law, but just a quick question here. Are you one that actually steals from people? Or verse 22, you who say that one should not commit adultery, absolutely you should not commit adultery. Just a quick question here. He says, do you commit adultery? You remember when Jesus came on the scene, uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they had a lot of problems with Jesus. Even though Jesus was of Jewish descent, his understanding of the law was very different than theirs. They always thought you just had to follow it at an external level. It was, you go through the rituals, you go through the routines, you follow the law that it could be observed in your life. It didn't matter about the inward reality, but Jesus was always about the heart. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is always meant to address us at a heart level. And Jesus says, you know, on that adultery issue, do you commit adultery? And they were like, well, I haven't 
I haven't physically committed adultery. No, I haven't entered in those kind of relationships. But Jesus says, you know what? Remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, he says, But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery in his heart already. And that's where, when Jesus said things like that, that completely unraveled and nerved the Jewish people. Because they always thought it was just a big external thing. As long as you didn't actually commit the act, you're probably okay. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's all about the heart. Do you? Do you commit adultery? Well, I'm sure they're getting real silent at this time, but he keeps going. He goes to the next one, verse 22. You who abhor idols, absolutely, to make a graven image of God, of a false God. It doesn't get any worse than that. He says, hey, uh, do you rob temples? Now, two things could possibly be referring to. One is, uh, the, even though the Jewish people understood that they were to give tithes and expressions of offerings, not only that supported the, the government of Israel, they, but it was also they had like these, their gifts of offerings and tithes went to the temple and it supported the work of the Levitical priests and all the work that took place in the temple. It was their ministry. It cultivated spiritual life. And God says, I want you from the very first and the very best that I've given you, I want you to honor me and worship me this way. I, I tell you what, this will be honoring to me if from the heart, you worship this way. And all the Jewish people, they're, they're kind of like us. Man, I, I like all the money that I've got. I don't want to give it to God. You know what I'm saying? I want to give it to myself. And they actually had different ways of, of working around that, and they would actually avoid doing that. I mean, it's more money in their pocket, right? And he says, uh, do you rob temples? Like my temple, you know, God's temple. And there may also be another thing that's being referenced here, and that is that the Jewish people, actually, there were some of them that would go and make raids on temples, these cultic temples belonging to people that, had, that were worshiping idols, and they would actually steal their stuff from their temple and sell it and make money. Deuteronomy 7, verses 25 and 26, God explicitly said when he gave the law, I don't want you to do that. But they did it. And so he, he might say, hey, by the way, do you, do you rob temples? You say that you should have out idols, but um, let me quick ask you, are, are you robbing temples? And then he says, verse 23, you know, you boast in the law, and at this time they're starting to get quiet, but through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? You boast that you've got God's word, man. We've got the scriptures. But do you know that through your breaking of the law that you're actually dishonoring the very God who gave them to you? Do you understand that? And he says, verse 24, for the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. And here he's quoting Isaiah and Ezekiel, and he needs to know this. You need to know this. When the, when the Jew, Jewish people would disobey God and they get themselves wrapped up in all sorts of idolatry, God says, listen, I will bless you if you will follow me, but if you will not, I will bring judgment. And when they got hauled off to Assyria and to Babylon, Man, God looked bad. They'd say, ha-ha, yeah, you're the chosen people, all right, right? You are weak and impotent because your God is. And they mocked the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he says, you know what? Every time you break the law, you are dishonoring God. God's name is blasphemed because you run around saying that you're God's people and you've got God's law, but it doesn't have any transformative work in your heart, you know that God is blasphemed by that sort of approach to life. And then he, if that is not enough, look at verse 25. 
There were two things that the Jewish people believed that God would never, the reasons why God would never bring judgment to his people. One was that they, they had the law. They had physical copies. They treasured those copies so much they wouldn't even touch them with their finger. They made sure they were, when they were copied, it was absolutely exact. But the other thing was that they practiced circumcision as a people. And they believed by virtue of those two things that God would never judge them. They would always escape God would never bring them to an account. Well, he's going to take that on in verse 25. He says, for indeed, you know what? Circumcision is of value. They believe because they practice circumcision, this little surgical procedure that happened on the eighth day to every Jewish boy, that God would prevent them and keep them from ever facing judgment. For indeed, circumcision is of value, he says, if you practice the law. But let me ask you this. But if you are a transgressor of the law, you violate the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. The Jewish people prided themselves to such a high degree to this little surgical procedure that happened to all these Jewish males that they, if they weren't calling Gentiles dogs, which was one of their favorite terms to refer to anybody who was non-Jewish, they referred to them as the uncircumcised. I mean, that was like as bad as you get. You and I are not like overly offended by something like that, but that's how they referred the uncircumcised. You are not set apart to God, and that's what circumcision was meant, that the, we are a people utterly set apart to God. He says, you know what? Your circumcision has become uncircumcision through your complete and total disobedience to the law. Now, things like circumcision, dietary codes, following the Sabbath, these became like what we could call boundary marker rituals. When they got hauled off into foreign empires, especially in Babylon, they, the people of Israel, the Jews, would set themselves apart by practicing these rituals and the dietary codes and obtaining and holding on to the Sabbath, so much so that they trusted in them, that this is what made them right with God. And that is always the temptation of religion, is to substitute the outward form for an inward reality that isn't there. They're just like, we're going to focus in on this. As long as we do these things, we are fine with God. Now, you know those uh, evangelism explosion questions? These are great questions. I like to ask people this. Like, the first question is, if you were to die tonight, like, how certain are you that you'd go to heaven? You ask people that. And they're like, ah, you know, like 80%, you know, 90%. And, they, and they've got some percentage. Okay, and they're like, great. And then you ask them that follow-up question. Well, then, if you were to appear before God tonight, and he was to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom and my heaven? What would you say? Uh, it's, it's very interesting. There are people that they're going to rattle off like they were a part of a church. Uh, I love when they tell me, like, they're, well, I've kept the Ten Commandments. And you, really? And you ask them, like, like which ones? What are they? And they don't they really know. Where are they found? Uh, why would you ask such a difficult question? But they're, they think that's the right answer. You know how the Jewish person would, how he'd respond to that? I will absolutely be going. Do you know why? Because... We have kept the law. We've got it, and we practice circumcision. This is our guarantee. Now, there, are, there is this error that's been around for several hundred years. It's called dual covenant theology, and it's, or two covenant theology. It's the idea that there are actually two means of having right relationship with God. There is, of course, that you have to believe the gospel, that you have to believe that you're a sinner, that Christ lived a righteous, perfect life. He dies as a perfect sacrifice on the, on the cross for your sins. He rose again on the third day, and by believing, you will have life in his name, and you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
But the two-covenant theology, or dual-covenant theology, says this. There is another way, and that other way is for Jewish people. All they need to do is follow and keep the law. And it's still around. In fact, there's a guy by the name of John Hagee. He's a televangelist. Uh, I'd steer clear of him. But this is the theology that he holds, and he is a major proponent of it. He loves the people of Israel, and we should, but he doesn't think they have to believe in Jesus when when you listen to what he has to say. Is that correct? Is that right? Well, think about it. Think about the guy who God uses to write this letter. That means that Paul's conversion to Christ is absolutely unnecessary, doesn't it? He didn't need to convert and trust in Jesus because, after all, he'd been circumcised and he'd been following the law to a T. No. His heart was wicked and lost. He he was not trusting in Jesus. He was all about the externals, but there was an inward reality that was not there. Or think about the 3,000 people that came to Christ. Remember at Pentecost, shortly after the resurrection, Jesus appears. Remember in Peter then, after he's filled with the Spirit, he preaches a message and 3,000 Jews place their faith in Christ. That would have been unnecessary. In fact, the gospel was just, just keep following the law and you ought to do all right. That is not the gospel. There's but one way. What we need is we need a heart issue addressed in each one of us. And you're like, you know what? That's good, Grant, but guess what? I'm not Jewish. No, but we have the same propensities. We love to trust in the external. Like, consider this. There are a lot of folks that believe they are fine with God because they were born into a Christian family. I've got a strong tradition. My grandmother had religion, you know? You ever hear people refer to that way? She was devout, right? I've got her Bible somewhere in a box somewhere. My family, I I come from a Christian family. Or another one, and this is so very popular, is that I've been baptized. This is is actually huge in the South. I've been baptized, and hence, I am right with God. You ask someone if they are a Christian, when did you place your faith in Christ? And they will tell you when they were baptized. And they are trusting in an external ritual. And this goes pretty deep, friends. I mean, we got folks that they're trusting so much in this baptism that they think that as long as that ritual has taken place in my life, I'm going to be fine with God. I had one gal that, uh, in order to marry her husband, they had to put her through baptism, and she didn't even understand what was taking place, but she wanted to marry this guy, so they did. She's totally confused on the issue. Did the external ritual make you right with God? Is that real relationship? Or let me give you another one. Belonging to a church, and you state whatever church that you're part of. Fellowship Bible Church, Methodist Church, Baptist Church, whatever, Picket, Presbyterian. I was a part, I'm a part of that church. That's what makes it work. Or that you've made a profession of faith. At one time, I had a sense of emotion. I waved my hand. I put it up in the air. I came forward on an aisle. I responded to a crusade. I was at a concert. I was really moved. And so there was something like that that took place, but there was no inward reality. What happens is we are very quick to be trusting in these outward rituals. You got places in Europe, you got whole countries that, that you've got people that have absolutely no faith in God, The government, through their taxation system, actually supports the churches, keeps them functioning, pays the salaries for all these guys. And they, and they, these people, they consider themselves Christians by default. We're not Muslim, not Jewish. I'm Christian. I live in a, I mean, that's, that's kind of our national heritage. And we got a lot of people thinking that way. The problem with religion is that it emphasizes the physical over the spiritual. It's always about what you can see and activities that you can do and rituals that you can follow. It also emphasizes secondary matters. 
like baptism or certain events that you take place or that you took part in a communion service one time. And what it does is ignores the matters of primary importance. What are the matters of primary importance? Like the gospel. You and I are to share the reality of Jesus Christ, to present in very clear ways that people could actually understand the gospel and respond by faith in Christ. And you know what else we're supposed to do? It, when you're focusing on the externals, you forget about not only presenting the gospel, but the very mission of the church. Do you guys know what the mission is? What is the mission? Uh, whoa, whoa. Really? We got a lot of folks that do not know the mission. We are to go and make disciples of all the nations. We are to teach them all that Jesus commanded. We are to bring people to the fullness of maturity, but when you get focused on getting people running through your doors and running through your programs like little hamsters on a cage and following certain rituals, the whole idea of the mission of the church, it goes away. And now we're just about ritual. We're just about routines. Whether you call it Protestant or you call it Catholic, we, can get, we are really good at just getting people to run through the motions, and we miss the mission of the church. When you talk, we talk about when does this get started, Oftentimes, it gets started at birth. So I referenced Roman Catholicism. Okay, they actually, they practice infant baptism, and they believe that it confers salvation onto that child. Like one Catholic writer said, quote, the faith which the infant lacks is replaced by the faith of the church. And if you've ever been to a Catholic funeral, and I've been to quite a few, they always go back to the baptism that takes place when that child was just an infant. In fact, their whole understanding of their, this individual making their way into God's kingdom and eventually into Christ's presence is always based on an external ritual that took place when they probably were asleep and they had no idea what was going on. But it's not just for Roman Catholics. You've got Protestant denominations, although they might deny and say, well, infant baptism itself doesn't save, but it is very important. In fact, it is a direct spiritual benefit for the individual. Like, for instance, even Martin Luther, okay, so you got this Catholic priest, he is a doctor of theology, and he's trying to wrestle with these issues about what real relationship with God is, and he makes the break because he discovers that a man or a woman is justified by faith in Christ, and he receives Christ's righteousness. But even him, as he's trying to work through these issues, and he's coming out of Catholicism, he would make these statements that the, like this, uh, he believed that the sacrament of baptism, that in it God miraculously grants saving faith to the infant who in itself is incapable of believing. He just, you have to believe, but at some point, but yet it has some major importance. And then you've got others in some liberal denominations, they just believe that, well, you're, you're come from a Christian family and baptism identifies you as a Christian. But is that really the case? It's kind of like this. You see that... Uh, you see that I'm wearing this wedding ring. Does everybody know what it means? It means that I'm married to this wonderful lady, Karina. And I, we exchanged our vows. I, I remember it, you know? I mean, we had my family there, all my friends. got all these kids in this youth group that I was a part of. We had outlaws, in-laws. Everybody was there, right? And, I, and we said it. We exchanged these rings. And this ring is a symbol. It declares I pledge my allegiance to this one gal. I love her. I'm committed to her. We are legally married. But let me ask you this. If I take this ring off, am I still a married man? You think so? I am, huh? Hmm. All right. Well, the answer to that question is that's right. But what if I actually took this ring and I put it on the hand of a boy? I said, here you go. Is that boy, is he now married? How many of you think that he's married? 
No one? Are you sure? What if he starts acting like he's married? I, I'm married. I've got this ring, you know? It's like, like the Lord of the Rings thing. It just kind of takes over. Like, I'm married now. Listen, I'm, I'm a married person. And he starts functioning like a married person. And he believes it. He tells people that I'm married. What do we call that? What do we call it? We call it delusional. If someone really actually did that, we'd go, hey, friends, you're not seeing things correctly. Yeah, you got the outward sign. You got the ring. And yes, that ring is a symbol of someone who's married. But you, in fact, are not. You're, that's crazy. And we all see that. And we laugh like, oh, yeah, we got it. We do the exact same thing with baptism, don't we? Or some sort of ritual or your church attendance, just like the Jews did with circumcision. Hey, man, we're practicing it. We're good to go. We've got God and he will not judge us. We got the symbol. We have got the symbol. It doesn't matter how we live. We got the symbol. Friends, that is the grave Error. Re- religion is absolutely worthless in obtaining God's righteousness. Chad Wallace wrote an intriguing book called uh, Early Christians of the 21st Century. And this will kind of provoke your thinking. He writes this, quote, Millions of Christians live in a sentimental haze of vague piety with soft organ music trembling in the lovely light from stained glass windows. Their religion is a pleasant thing of emotional quiver, divorced from the intellect, divorced from the will and demanding little except lip service to a few harmless platitudes. Let it sink in. Or he goes on to write, I suspect that Satan has called off his attempt to convert people to agnosticism. After all, if a person travels far enough away from Christianity, he or she is always in danger of seeing it in perspective and deciding that it is true. Now listen to this. It is much safer from Satan's point of view to vaccinate a person with a mild case of Christianity so as to protect him from the real disease. The fatal flaw with religion is this, that you can end up trusting in your religion and miss placing your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. And if you're like going, whoa, man, Paul, you're... Why would you want to do that to the Jewish people? What you're writing there is absolutely unsettling. In fact, it's unsettling a lot of folks of us right even today. Why did God have him write this? Well, it's kind of like this. Let's say I'm walking in my neighborhood, and I notice some of my friends, um, their their house is on fire. I'm like, look at all these blazes going everywhere. I'm like, you know, maybe maybe I should go and warn them. I don't know, but... On the other hand, they're probably having a good time in there. They might be watching a movie. You know, family time's rare. Maybe they're having a good family time, or maybe they're asleep. I wouldn't want to wake them up, right? Everybody needs their rest. Do I not have a moral responsibility to warn them? Or it's like a, a family driving a car, and I happen to know that a bridge is washed out. Do I, like, stand there, whoa, whoa, whoa. I know that you think you can cross this bridge, but that bridge is no longer there, and it will not get you where you think you are going. I have a responsibility to warn you and to show you the right way because Paul himself was on a road that led to the bridge of disaster and God had turned his heart. And that's what he is doing here. When you love someone, you will tell them the truth, even though it might be a little bit awkward sometimes. And so after, after talking about all this faith in this false external religion, 
He then gives us the essence of a genuine faith in God. Look at beginning in verse 26. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? If you got a guy who didn't follow the right of circumcision, he's a Gentile, but he has become a believer in God and he follows the law, won't that be like circumcision because he's really set apart to God? Or verse 27, and he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? If you got a guy who wasn't circumcised, but he really is following the faith and trusting and believing and actually following the word, he's going to become like a judge. His life will be like a foil to you who, having the law and circumcision, don't actually follow it. And that's, the, the Jewish people, they were all about the rituals. They had phylacteries, little boxes on their head where they pray, got scripture verses there. They'd have long tassels. They were into show. They wanted the chief seats in the synagogue. They wanted to be at banquets where they'd be recognized. It was all about people recognizing them and seeing them practice their religion. You want to know what the essence of real faith in God is? Look at these next two verses. Verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. This is an inward heart reality. And circumcision is that which is of the what? Heart. It's a heart relationship. It's not about the externals. It's about God doing a work in your heart. In fact, he says, and it is by the Spirit. See that verse 29? It is the Spirit of the living God that does this, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Remember what Judah, Jew means? What does that mean? Praise. And he's playing upon that. If you really want to be a people of praise, it's a people who God has done an internal heart work, where your faith and your relationship with God comes from an inward reality that you truly trust him, you love him. And that's what he's emphasizing here. Your praise comes from God. It is an inward reality. It is a cutting that takes place from God's spirit at work in your heart. Now, by this time, you know that the the Jewish people are not going to take this well. They've been practicing, they've been banking on it, that they're fine with God because they practice the externals. Paul says it is an internal reality. And the whole book of, of Romans expands on what does it mean to really know God and what does that really look like? Well, you know that they're going to have some questions and some objections. So beginning in chapter 3, that's what he's going to do. He's going to start engaging in the objections to humanity's need for faith in Christ. There, he, it's almost like he knows what they're going to ask. If you, if you were engaged a teacher or a professor and they've taught a subject a lot, they already know when the questions are going to come and the objections are coming. I mean, yes, I know that you're very impressed with your professors. Like, man, they are really smart. How did they know I was going to ask that? Because they've been around a while. They've been doing this. And Paul is doing the exact same thing. A good lawyer knows when the objections are going to come and he's ready to answer them. And that's exactly what's taking place here. He knows the questions. He's been presenting the gospel for 20 years. He knows that they're going to ask. And so that's what he, you find here. So he actually starts answering some of the most important questions that are going to be fired, and the very first one, chapter 3, verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Is there any advantage in being a Jew if Jews are condemned? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Is there any benefit? What does he say? Verse 2, 
Absolutely. Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. God gave them His Word. His Word leads to faith in Christ. His Word guides what life is really meant to be. It guides our decisions, morals, ethics, and it explains what real relationship with God is. God gave all of that to His people, His chosen people, the Jews. They got great benefit. Well, then, there's this next question that he asks here in verse 3. Has Israel's unbelief canceled God's word? The fact that Israel's not believing, has that somehow canceled God's word? Well, look what he says. He says, well, well, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? If they're not believing, is that somehow nullified God's faithfulness? Look what he says, verse 4. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Now, their un- unfaithfulness never negates the fact that God is faithful, just, and righteous. In fact, even if every man is found to be a liar, God is always found to be true. And then he says, he quotes here from Psalm 51. And so, let me just give you a little background on Psalm 51. You remember David? Remember David and Uriah the Hittite? Remember Uriah's wife, Bathsheba? David commits adultery with Bathsheba, gets her husband killed, trying to cover it all. Remember all that? And when God addresses that issue in his life, and he is totally broken before God, Psalm 51 is his his writing of his psalm as he presents his heart to God. And in that psalm, in verse 4, he says that God is absolutely just to judge sinners. He is faithful, faithful not only to bless He is also faithful to judge and bring consequences. And so quoting from the Septuagint here, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, he writes at the end of verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And it literally should be translated, when you are judging, you are found to be faithful. God is absolutely just, and he is completely faithful. Not only just for the blessings. God is faithful to hold his word even if there are consequences for you disobeying it. No, God is absolutely faithful and just. Well, then the next question uh, you can find in verses 5 through 8. Well, why not sin and glorify God all the more? Why not, if what you're saying, and this was the great accusation for the early Christians, they were saying like, well, your sin brings glory to God. You've got it all wrong and you're making God look real bad. You've twisted it. And so that's what he's saying here, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, God. So all of our wrongdoings somehow shows how God is really right. What shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Are you saying that God is unrighteous, that he actually needs us to sin to show how good and how pure and how right he is? Is that what you're saying? And he, notice he says, I'm speaking in human terms because this is twisted human logic. Is that what you're saying? Verse 6, may it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world. God is the one who's going to judge the world, and he's absolutely righteous. And the whole idea of you saying that, well, you gotta, the only way God will ever show himself to be righteous is that people have to sin, it would be saying, like, you know what, God shouldn't be judging these people. In fact, he should be affirming them and thanking them because it shows him to be good. In fact, that's really what he goes on to say. Verse, verse 7, but if through my lie, so me lying, the truth of God abounded to his glory, God's made look good through like my lying, he says, why am I still being judged a sinner? God should be thanking me. Or verse 8, and why not say, 
as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. He says, their condemnation is just. It's kind of like this. You know, our, our firemen or people that respond to disasters, they are highly skilled individuals. And so it's kind of like, you know what we need to do? We need to blow up more buildings. We need to have more fires so that our firemen and our people that respond to these disasters can really show off their skills. Does that make sense? That's kind of what he's saying here. And you're like, yeah, okay, so God is able to show that he's righteous even through the unrighteousness of his people. You need to know that there are always consequences of sin. There are consequences in human relationships, human hearts, and God himself, it is like an affront to his character every time a person sins. That's why Paul says that sort of thinking, to say that God has only made known as a righteous, a righteous one through the wickedness of his people, he says, their condemnation is just. And then one final question, he says, well, what then? Are we better than they? Is the Jew better than the Gentile. And notice what he says. Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. All of us are under sin. Whether you're a Jewish person trusting in external religions, rituals, uh, you are trusting in your baptism or your church attendance so that you got 25 Bibles in your house that you never read or your good behavior, none of that matters. All of us, Jew, Gentile, we are all under sin and we need the mercy and the grace of God. There's only one way for salvation and you can't earn it. I don't care how good you are and how much you try, you are a sinner and you are in need of God's grace and it is bountifully applied and given to us in Christ. There's a fanciful old tale of a man who dies, and he appears at the gates of heaven. And there is Gabriel, and he wasn't quite expecting that. And Gabriel says, man, all right, good to see you. And let me tell you how this works here. All you have to do is tell me uh, the good works that you did while you're down there on earth, and uh, I'm going to give you the point values for each one of those. And all you have to do is once you hit 100 points, you go in. I wasn't quite expecting that, but the guy's all right here. Well, so he thinks he's going to start off with this lead, man. This will pretty much get me in. He goes, guess what? As you know, I was married to the same gal for 50 years. I never cheated on her, not even in my heart. And Gabriel goes, that is wonderful. That is worth three points. Good job. Three points. What do you mean? He's thinking, three points? Man. Okay. Oh, I got something else here. Man, I I tell you what, I'm pretty much in the church all the time. And I, not only is in the church, I served and I gave a lot of money. I I was there. And Gabriel goes, that is wonderful. That that is definitely worth a point. (laughs) Oh, what? The guy's like coming unraveled. You got to be kidding me. One point for all of that? He's like, okay, I know what you're saying. Okay. You know, also, in my city, I started a mission. I started a mission to these homeless people, and I fed a lot of them, especially at the holidays. I gave a lot of money. I gave time. And he says, that's wonderful. That's worth another two points. And the guy just like, <laughs> you know, at this rate, the only way I'll ever get into heaven is by the grace of God. And Gabriel says, come on in. And friends, that's how it works. It's not about your rituals and things that you've done or were done to you. It's about a heart work, a circumcision of the heart, where you are trusting in the living God. You've placed your faith in Christ. 
Don't be putting your trust in all of the good things that you think you've done. And some of you have done some really good things. Thank you. And you'll, you'll likely be rewarded for those things if you've really trusted Christ. But the only way you enter into his kingdom and know real relationship with God is by trusting in the person of Christ. Because until our hearts are trusting in Christ, we remain under the wrath of sin. Let's pray. Lord, I uh, thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. You have made it crystal clear. It's not in the rituals. It's not in circumcision. It's not even having the law or even keeping it. It's trusting you in the heart, with the heart. And only you can do this work. So right now, I just would pray that if there's, there's someone here who's never placed their faith in Christ, would they right now just pray with me and say, God, I, I turn from myself and my sin. I've been trusting in some bunch of rituals or things that I've done. I'm, I really, I want you. And so I turn from my sin and myself and I place my faith and trust in Christ. And for all of us, may we rejoice in a living Savior. May we find our security, our salvation, and our joy in knowing Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what's about to take place here is something I think that you will not forget. So with that, I'm going to have Sandra Osland introduce Ashley and Ben, for those of you who don't know this dear family, and to tell you what's been taking place here. Sandra, great man. My name, like you said, is, is it on? Am I working? Hello, hello, hello. Testing one, two, three. Good? All right. My name is Sandra Ostland, and I'm um, involved with the worship ministry here, and, and it's a really privilege to be a part of the worship ministry. I'm here to, today to tell you about something very special that has just happened, but has been in process for over two years. This story involves these two very, spe- very special people that are next to me. Many of you will recognize my good friend Ben and his mother, Ashley Ballou. As much as this story centers around these two wonderful people, there is something even bigger that has been at work here. I have often heard the phrase, fingerprints of God, to describe a situation or process that defies our logic or understanding. Well, I've had the opportunity to have front row seats to a series of events that has left everyone involved in awe, stunned, and yet at the same time reminded that the God we serve is bigger than we sometimes imagine as we go about our day-to-day lives. Throughout this, I've seen ordinary people being used in extraordinary ways, people whose faith and obedience has been unexpectedly rewarded, and God's great divine care for his people. Are you ready? (laughs) I believe that what you hear you'll be blessed by and encouraged by. This story starts with Ben and my older children, Aiden and Dylan. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure we would be standing here today if it weren't for the fact that these children developed a friendship at school. My boys loved to play with Ben at recess, to help him with special events, and they would talk a great deal about him at home. This was fantastic. And eventually, we asked them over to our home so they could play. And we all very much enjoyed having the opportunity to get to know them better. Ben is a true joy to be around, and anyone who knows him knows that's true. And Ashley is a remarkable woman with exceptional character. And it was on a Saturday afternoon that my wife, Vanessa, asked Ashley if she would join us for church the following day. Ashley said yes, and it seemed as if fellowship adopted them as family right away. As we got to know Ashley more, we learned that she had raised Ben by herself almost his entire life, and that it was beginning to take a toll on her physical health. As a matter of fact, soon after she began attending here, she had to have surgery on her shoulder to repair damage that had occurred as a result of lifting Ben. I learned that she was not only having to lift him in and out of the car, but in and out of bed, 
in and out of the shower, and in and out of physical therapy equipment, etc., etc. This, of course, didn't seem sustainable, especially as Ben was growing bigger every day. And we found out that if she were able to move out of her apartment and into a place that she owned, she would be eligible to have a tracking system installed in the ceiling of her home that would allow her to move Ben around from room to room with much greater ease. Then after that, we began to imagine a house with a bathroom that was designed for Ben's special needs, and a garage that would allow her to bring Ben in from the car without being rained on, and a place large enough to allow for Ben's therapy equipment to be used at home. In short, God put it on our heart to help find a way to get Ashley into a home where she could comfortably and safely live and take care of Ben. So we started to think how this church might be able to help her find a home, perhaps by identifying the right people whose gifts and talents align with this project, perhaps by using some money from the Benevolence Fund, and most of all, by being in prayer and asking for God's guidance and blessing, we might be able to help Ben and Ashley find a home. So it began. From the beginning, we want to assure that wherever Ashley and Ben ended up, they were in a sustainable financial situation. So our friend Brian Davis, who's a wonderful financial advisor here at the church, was brought on board, and he ended up being an invaluable part of this process. While several of us here at Fellowship were meeting, planning, searching, and praying about this, something strange happened. A member of our church named Paul Lassiter, who had no idea what we were working on, walked up to Ashley at the service and out of the blue asked her about her living situation and indicated that he was interested in helping her. Even better, Paul worked for a company called Stylecraft Home Builders. And now things started to get real. We here at the church were able to team up with an amazing building company, and we started riding a roller coaster of God's great design. What followed was a process that brought together our team here at Fellowship, Stylecraft Homes, and a generous mortgage company called Guild Mortgage. And sure enough, on November 26th last year, we broke ground on a new custom-designed home for Ashley and Ben. One of the things you might notice from the pictures of the groundbreaking is this limestone brick, which was laid into the foundation with the following verses from Luke chapter 6, verses 47 through 48 printed on it. And you can see them on the screen. So, why are we here today? It was with very great excitement and joy that we were able to move Ashley and Ben from their apartment into their beautiful new home just yesterday. I think we were all awed and humbled how all this came together. While I mentioned many of the people involved with this already, there were many, many, many more that gave generously of their time, their resources, and their prayers. And it made this a reality. And it even included a benefit concert by a musician in New York. It was amazing to see how God used the friendship of some children to ultimately create something of such special significance. And as much a blessing as I hope this home will be for them, it has been a great blessing for us as well. So finally, let's join together in congratulating and welcoming Ashley and Ben into their new home. And as we are doing so, let us also give thanks to our marvelous God for all that he has done to provide for this wonderful family. Well, this is the second time I had to do this, and I'm still feeling the same way, Ben. Um, I can pray for you, buddy. I can, certainly can do that. Um, ben has taught us a lot. He's taught us about the love of God, the grace of God, and I will pray. You, you just want me to be quiet, don't you? We're going to pray for this boy, and... Uh, 
We're going to thank you as well, just to know that your finances that you give, uh, they're used wisely, and, uh, and they're used to minister to this guy here. And so I want you to join me together and to pray for this family, pray that God is continued glorified through them, and pray that God continues to provide, all right? So we're going to pray, all right? So everyone else join me as we do this, all right? Let me pray, buddy, all right? Dear God, I come and I thank you and I praise you for that you are our God, that you love us, that you care for us, and I thank you so much for this young man here and his mother and how much they teach us uh, about love. And Lord, we are so blessed to have them as a part of Fellowship Bible Church here. And we are so blessed, Lord, just to be a part of uh, just putting them in a home. And so, Lord, we pray for Ben. We pray that you will continue to provide for him and Ashley. And Lord, help us as a church to continue to love them, to care for them. And Lord, really be the body of Christ that we're called to be. And Lord, I ask and I pray that you will continue to use this family for your glory that they might shine as lights of the love of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ right in that home that you've put them in. And Lord, thank you for this church family and their their faithfulness to give and how by their giving that helped uh, in this this process here. Lord, I thank you also for those who gave of their time and their talents uh, to just be a part of this whole celebration that we have here, Lord. Lord, most of all, Lord, we again, we just give you praise and we give you glory. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.